0: fully frank dividends out of Australia, no withholding tax. And when you're looking at foreign entities paying dividends to an Australian parent, then you're into potentially applying the treaty, but that's a function of whatever the foreign jurisdiction imposes as a domestic rate. What the treaties do is cap the rate. They say that the source country cannot impose withholding tax greater than X percent, whether it's five or 15, but that's not to say that all countries impose dividend withholding tax. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants,
1: Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 317 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. The world has become much smaller. 50 years ago, you would have had to be a large operation to consider expanding overseas and not even 50 years ago probably even 20 or 10 years ago but now it is much easier it's perfectly feasible even when you're relatively small with maybe a turnover of one or two millions but when your clients expand overseas their tax affairs become very complex and so for this purpose let's drill into international tax over the next few weeks In this episode, Clint Harding of Arnold Block Lieblay in Sydney will walk you through seven concepts in international tax, the foreign hybrid rules, the hybrid mismatch rules, thin cap and transfer pricing, CFCs, portfolio versus non-portfolio dividends and withholding tax. So let's start with foreign hybrid rules and hybrid mismatch rules. You will be forgiven if you think that they are the same. They both have the word hybrid in them. They both sound very similar. They're both tongue twisters. Both are about international tax. At least I thought they were one and the same. So I asked Clint whether they are. Point hybrid rules and hybrid mismatch rules. the same thing, isn't it?
0: No. So unhelpfully... There's now two sets of provisions in the act. One is called the foreign hybrid rules, and the other is the hybrid mismatch rules. And they do two different things. And unhelpfully, the foreign hybrid rules have been around about, well, oh, 15 years, I think they've been around. They were in Division 830 of the 97 Act. And the hybrid mismatch rules have been in for about 12, 12 to 18 months and they unhelpfully put those in at Division 832. So they sound the same, and they're located pretty much one after the other in the 1997 Tax Act, but they do do two different things, both relevant to international taxation and sort of structuring uh, issues that that we'll cover today and some of which we covered last time. So the foreign hybrid rules uh, in Division 830 are a set of rules that are designed to help you classify certain types of foreign entities for Australian tax purposes. And that sort of drives off the fact that a lot of other jurisdictions have forms of companies like LLCs that are taxed in their jurisdictions as look-throughs or limited partnerships that are taxed as look-throughs. But Australia, our standard definition of, of a company, or well, Australia will tax a limited partnership as a company for most purposes, unless it's what we call a VCLP or an ESVCLP. So Australia adopts a slightly different approach to how they tax those entities. And so what the foreign hybrid rules were brought in to do was to allow for Australian tax purposes, Australian taxpayers to treat certain of these entities that would otherwise be taxed as companies as a look through partnership. In particular, things like UK limited partnerships and US LLCs. uh, Because otherwise, if you tax them as a company, sort of blows up the whole purpose for potentially using those in the first place. So... There's there's a whole there's there's one set those rules are sort of broken down with one set of rules for foreign limited partnerships and one for foreign limited liability companies and you've got to work through the various requirements but if you satisfy all of those where you can get to is that foreign entity can be treated for Australian tax purposes as a look through entity or a transparent entity.
1: So the foreign hybrid rules are basically that without those rules we would treat foreign companies just as companies, like we treat any other company and foreign limited partnerships, just as foreign limited partnerships, how we treat any other limited partnership. But because these entities in their relevant countries are treated as look-through vehicles, thanks to the foreign hybrid rules, we can also treat them as look-through vehicles, even though our normal tax rules wouldn't allow that. But thanks to these foreign hybrid rules, we can treat them as look-through entities.
0: Excellent. Perfect. Uh, That's exactly what they do. Uh, And and that's one of the requirements that you, I mean, if people are interested, they can go have a look at Division 830. One of the requirements is they're not taxed, they're not subject to tax in their own jurisdiction. So i.e., that that, that entity, that limited partnership or LLC doesn't actually lodge a tax return and pay tax. And that's that sort of notion of transparency that comes through from the other jurisdictions. And I think I think we'll move on. We should get to it today, talk a bit about LLCs and sort of that distinction, at least in the US context, that might help sort of fill, fill some of those gaps as we move through. So that's the foreign hybrid rules. Those can be pretty complicated, and I should say they only apply on an outbound scenario. So one of the conditions is basically that that entity would otherwise have to be a controlled foreign company or a CFC. So it applies if you have an Australian taxpayer that holds interests in one of these things the question is whether that thing is a foreign hybrid or not it doesn't doesn't apply up the chain so if you have a multinational entity having an Australian subsidiary they don't apply to the classification of that parent entity they apply sort of I, I draw my structure diagrams top down so they apply going down to subsidiaries or interests in foreign entities that Australian taxpayers have. So that's the foreign hybrid rules. The hybrid mismatch rules are a different kettle of fish uh, to use a cliche. Those are the ones in Division 832, and they come out of the OECD BEPS sort of project that's been going for about the last well, 10 years now. Um, this sort of like well, Australia was one of the first to adopt them. Not all, not all nations have. But that's a very specific set of rules that are designed to target either certain types of arrangements or certain characterizations of entities that allow an arbitrage and to shut that down. So the types of things they get is, for example, you'll be familiar, Australia has a set of rules, the debt equity rules in Division 974 that seek to categorize certain financial arrangements as either debt or equity on a substance over form basis. So you may have some form of legal share being a preference share, but for tax purposes, Division 974 in Australia will tax that as uh, debt. Uh, and the consequence of it being taxed as debt in Australia is that payments on that instrument are treated as interest and are deductible. So you get a deduction for those payments. Now, these rules are aimed at the scenario where there's an arbitrage where if you pay that interest, if you pay that distribution on, let's call it a debt instrument to a foreign jurisdiction and the recipient recognizes that as equity, not debt. So you've got two different characterizations to that arrangement, it may not include that in its taxable income. There may be a and may treat it as equity and therefore there might be some form of participation exemption that would exempt that. So therefore you've got what they call a deduction and in, in a non-inclusion case. So you've got a deduction in Australia for the payment and no corresponding item being included in the assessable income of an entity offshore. So that's that's one where it focuses on the characterization of an arrangement. The other ones, there's the, there's all sorts of fun and games. There's reverse hybrid mismatches, there's imported foreign hybrid mismatches ones that play off uh, entities in low-tax jurisdictions. So very complicated. The ATO is still finalising their guidance on some of these rules. They've only been in uh, for 12 months. They're, they're, uh, I think the sort of wider criticism is they are incredibly complicated, and I would suspect it's going to take people quite some time to get used to when to look for those rules. But the, the I guess the concerning part is there's no de minimis. So they can apply equally to you, to a small, medium enterprise that has obviously international transactions because there's got to be another jurisdiction involved. So purely domestic Australian circumstances, probably about the only time you don't have to think about them. As soon as you're borrowing money or there's investments from foreign entities, you probably need to think about these hybrid mismatch rules. Uh, and the latest ATO guidance is on imported mismatches. The draft guidance of that ran to about 32 pages just in documenting a compliance approach for that. Um, That's just one of the circumstances that may apply. And I think they've gone for their sort of traffic light, practical compliance, and I think the seven different colours to the traffic light. So that gets awfully complicated, uh, and I think it's unhelpful. There was no sort of de minimis in those rules so that the vast majority of Australian taxpayers could not Lose sleep thinking about them, or presumably their advisors lose sleep over not thinking about them. But anyway, so two different things. You've got the foreign hybrid rules that sort of deal with foreign LLCs and LPs and how they're characterized. And then these hybrid mismatch rules that are sort of designed to catch things that fall between the cracks and where people play games on arbitraging different tax treatments in different jurisdictions.
1: So if you try to play funny games, try to find loopholes between different double tax agreements or different tax regimes, the hybrid mismatch rules might stop you from doing yeah, that. Yeah, I
0: mean, your starting assumption should be that they, they, they will apply and maybe there's a reason why they don't, but that's precisely what they're designed to stop. And the OECD badge, that sort of behavior as a harmful tax practice and these rules are aimed at trying to shut that down. And uh, it just depends on the jurisdictions involved. Whether we've got the rules, have the other jurisdiction got the rules? Who turns off the deduction? Uh, who should include an amount if it isn't included in anyone? So there's all of those sorts of issues that come out and need to be worked through.
1: I will soon speak with Alex Rasmussen of Arnold Block Libla in Sydney about withholding tax on royalty fees and the lot. But in the meantime, let me just quickly share with you a brief comment Alex made about the hybrid. Mismatch rules.
0: The hybrid mismatch rules and, and the nightmares we can have about that sometimes. So it can drag you into pretty deep water pretty quickly. And, and as Clint noted, the fact that it's taken the ATO 12 to 18 months to issue their own guidance on, on these rules, despite you know, the, the heavy hand they would have had in um, the consultation process and, and actually having those rules legislated, um, I think really gives you a good indication of how tricky they can be.
1: Next question, taxation of financial arrangements, TOFA. When does TOFA kick in and does it usually just affect large businesses and banks or is it also something that a small to medium business expanding overseas would have to look out for?
0: Well, TOFA has got really nothing to do with whether or not it's international or overseas. It can apply in purely a domestic context. Uh, that's, those are the, this is the set of rules that were introduced goodness me, what am I talking, probably 11 years ago now or 12 years ago in Division 230 of the 97 Act, so the Taxation of Financial Arrangement Rules. I mean, the starting point is, as you say, they're largely geared towards the big end of town and and entities that are in the business of money lending. The genesis of the rules was that the existing rules that dealt with financial instruments and taxing the, the income and deductions and gains and losses on those was a bit haphazard. And so it was largely driven by business, I think, and in particular the banks. They wanted some sort of regime for taxing financial arrangements that was easier to comply with and sort of more closely mirrored what their accounts were spitting out and how things were recognised for accounting purposes. So the genesis of the regime is trying to align the tax outcomes with the accounting outcomes. But generally speaking, I'm just trying to see what the threshold is you can always elect in, so you can elect into TOFA. I don't know of many clients there's certainly not in the small and medium enterprises or even much bigger that would voluntarily elect in because once you're in, it's irrevocable and you have to comply with it on every financial arrangement. So, that, And there's various elections that can be made and things. So I don't think people go out of their way to get them unless there's a specific outcome under those rules that, that might be beneficial. For example, there's special rules dealing with hedging and foreign exchange that might I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud. In some circumstances, get a better outcome in terms of timing than applying the normal rules. But I'm just looking at section 230 5 now. It doesn't apply to individuals or entities with aggregated, amongst other things, uh, entities with aggregated turnovers of less than 100 million, financial assets of less than 100 million, and assets of less than 300 million. So, pretty high threshold before you're dragged into TOFA. Uh, But as I say, the option is to elect in if you think, um, presumably go and get in some advice, that it might be beneficial to do that. Other than that, we've got the sort of existing regimes that deal with financial instruments such as the Qualifying Securities Regime and Division 16A of the 36 Act. That sort of provides a de facto accruals treatment for things like deferred interest and um, deeply discounted bonds and other financial arrangements like that, that you may only pay the interest at the end, but they provide a basis for spreading that over the term of the actual instrument itself, and then you've got sort of traditional, what we call traditional securities, which are dealt with in twenty six B and twenty six B, 26B, twenty six BB and seventy B. I always get those wrong, but there's, they deal with traditional securities and the timing of gains and losses on those. So that's generally where you end up if you're not in TOFA. Uh, now I think look, there's, there's conferences on TOFA. <laughs> so if someone's really interested, they can find some good stuff on it, but that's broadly what it what it does.
1: And the good thing is for TOFA, the lowest threshold is hundred million dollars. So that will kick quite a few businesses out.
0: Yeah, Correct. Good.
1: Thin capitalization is basically just when you when the issue is transfer of profits, correct?
0: Yeah, so so the thin cap rules will potentially apply where you are when when you are paying interest and seeking to claim deductions for that interest. That means when you have borrowed money, you have to pay interest uh, offshore. So effectively, where it applies is for entities, Australian taxpayers who are either foreign controlled or control a foreign entity, they need to think about thin cap and what those rules do is, as you say, they're designed to stop foreign jurisdictions stripping out all of the profit out of Australia by way of excessive interest deductions. Uh, And so where these rules apply is where you breach one of the various thresholds that look at sort of how much debt you have versus how much equity in a company, amongst other things, then to the extent you exceed those thresholds, they will turn off deductibility for that interest. So there are some taxpayers who know, who monitor it and go over, and then they just accept for the moment that they won't get a deduction for all of the interest. For the most part, people, those that are impacted will spend a lot of time and effort and tracking sort of where they are with that there is a helpfully a de minimis for the thin cap thresholds I think it's two million dollars in interest deductions a year before you have to worry about that so if you think about what sort of loan facility that is that you pay two million in interest a year I don't even at five percent my maths isn't that good but you're looking at sort of maybe a 20 or 40 million dollar facility before you necessarily have to think about those and of the basic threshold that everyone tries to stay under that there's there's worldwide gearing thresholds, there's arm's length debt amounts you can try, but the basic one that most people refer to is what they call the safe harbor. And that is that if you maintain a safe harbor of no more than one point five to one of debt to equity. So for every three dollars of debt you need to have two dollars of equity, then they won't apply.
1: Under two million dollars of interest, you don't have to worry about think cap at all. No. Oh, that's very good. So if you want to transfer profit outside of Australia, you have three ways. The first one is to just do a dividend. The second one is to pay management fees. And the third one is to pay interest on a loan. And so as long as you are under $2 of interest, you don't have to worry about thin cap. You can just go ahead and basically claim a tax deduction for those interest payments and pay them. Yeah.
0: Although you do need to be aware of obviously transfer pricing. There is no de minimis, so you can't just put an artificially high interest rate on your related party loan to suck out profit from Australia. Okay. The the, the transfer pricing provisions will kick in, that was the whole Chevron case.
1: So the transfer pricing provisions do cover management fees and they also cover
0: interest payments? Yeah, any transactions, any related party transactions generally. And that's where you've got to be careful with management fees, I've seen people basically just. Badge everything as a management fee if they can't fit it under something else. But uh, you need to expect if, if it's picked up, they will actually ask you to demonstrate what management services have been provided. So you can't just pay a management fee to someone who's not actually providing any management services. I've seen people with shelf companies in weird jurisdictions are charging management fees. And there's actually no one employed in those companies. So how, that comes unstuck pretty quick.
1: Yes, and I correct myself, there are actually four ways to transfer profit. One is the normal way of paying dividends. The second one is interest payments. The third one is management fees. And the fourth one is actually inflated stock prices.
0: The ATO's big focus at the moment is on transferring IP offshore and and, and uh, not doing that at arm's length prices as a way of getting assets out of Australia and therefore less income rolling up in Australia.
1: Yeah, that's actually true. A fifth one is charging royalties for IP.
0: Yeah, royalties between entities or getting that, getting income producing assets out of Australia so that you're not having to charge those fees because the income's being recognised in a foreign jurisdiction. But obviously, that you need to think about CFC rules, which we'll go on to shortly. Remember about the thin cap rules is that you have to be controlled or a controller. So generally, that's a 50% test. But there's lots of Sort of interesting views now on what constitutes control for these purposes. So you would normally think, well, if I only own 20%, you've only got a foreign shareholder that owns 20% of your Australian company. Generally, that's not going to be a controller. You're not going to have a foreign controller because it's only 20%. But you need to look at things like the constitution of the company to make sure that that shareholder doesn't have a right of veto. The ATO will take the view that negative control is control for these purposes. So as I said, the right to block certain decisions or if certain decisions require unanimous approval or, or a majority approval of 75 and you hold 30%, uh, there'll be a world with, depending on what those decisions are about, that could be control. So control is itself a, a difficult topic in the context of thin cap.
1: So thin cap only applies if you have 50% of control or more, however you define control. That's already a tricky question in itself. And if the interest is over 2 million. But apart from that, you have the transfer pricing provisions who apply to everything you might set up to try to transfer profits. Correct. When do the CFC rules kick in and what do the CFC rules change?
0: Before you even get to the CFC rules, the threshold question I spend a lot of time on with clients when they're setting up offshore entities or subsidiaries and or expanding into foreign jurisdictions. Is actually residents. So you remember that Australia at the moment, so we get a law change, you're in, you're treated as an Australian tax resident company if you, well, firstly if you're incorporated here, we'll assume that's not the case, but secondly if your voting control is in Australia and you carry on business here, or if your central management and control is in Australia and you carry on business here, and coming out of that Bywater decision or Bywater Bank, the ATO took the view that to the court. They claim the court took the view, and now the ATO has that when you talk about central management and control and carrying on a business, those two are sort of conflated. So the ATO took the view that that decision meant that a company was should be regarded as carrying on a business wherever its central management and control was. So that may mean that if you have Australian directors of a foreign company, that you don't need to worry about the CSC rules because you're actually an Australian tax resident and then you're into sort of treaty. Application of double tax treaties and tie break tests, uh, or if there's no treaty, potentially lodging returns in two jurisdictions uh, and claiming credits and that sort of thing. So, notwithstanding you have a foreign entity set up, you need to firstly think about where that entity is tax resident. And then, if it's not resident, then you and it's a company, then you think about the CFC rules. And effectively, what the CFC rules do in Part Ten of the Thirty Six Act is uh, tax that, that not anti-avoidance rules, they're anti-deferral rules. So these are rules designed to stop you parking all your money offshore uh, and just deferring tax by leaving it over there until such time as you repatriate those profits or income back to Australia. Uh, And what it focuses on is uh, passive income. So that's things like interest, dividends, royalties, rental income, uh, those sorts of things are, are passive income, and that's what those rules will seek if they apply to attribute back to the Australian taxpayer on an attribution basis. And an attribution basis means it doesn't follow the cash. So you can you can have a BVI company that has money in it that's earning interest income, and you will, notwithstanding that that company never distributes anything back to you in Australia, if you own 100% of that company. Uh, that will be a CFC, and you will have to include that interest income in your Australian return, notwithstanding you haven't got the cash. And then there's all sorts of interactions with the rest of the Act to make sure that when that cash does come back, that you you don't get taxed on that, so there's no double tax. But ostensibly, it's about passive income, and, and it distinguishes between jurisdictions as well. So there's sort of good or listed jurisdictions and bad jurisdictions. So I think there's seven... Listed jurisdictions, countries like the UK and US that have comparable tax regimes. And generally, there's a much narrower type of income. They sort of accept that 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 sort of income will be taxed in those jurisdictions on an equivalent rate. So less likely to have income attributed to you. And then there's all the rest of the world. uh, We have to pay a lot more attention to detail. But so that's what they do. Uh, As I say, it's an attribution mechanism. When do they apply? They apply a company will be a controlled foreign company or a CFC if it if five or less five or fewer Australian residents together hold 50%. One Australian resident by themselves holds 40%, or this is an associate inclusive test, and or five or less Australian residents otherwise control it. So again there's this de facto control concept. So um, the first two tests sort of go off voting control and rights to dividends and uh, capital. The, the other one is what we call a de facto control test. Yeah. And so, if you pass all of those, the entity is a CFC. Then the question is whether there's an attributable taxpayer in Australia for that CFC. And to be an attributable taxpayer, you have to have 10% or more interest in that company. So, we could have, I, I, you, me, and Alex could all be shareholders. I could have 50%, you could have four, 42%, and Alex could have 8% in a foreign company. That company would be controlled because the three of us own 100 so it's a cfc but only you and i would be attributable taxpayers because alex only has eight percent that's not enough for him to be an attributable taxpayer
1: in that example wouldn't the company be an australian resident anyway
0: yeah okay well (laughs) not necessarily let's say none of us are directors none of us have any control over the management of that company okay so we would have voting control in australia and let's just say that that company manufactures widgets or doesn't actually carry on any business in Australia, then it wouldn't be a resident here. It is possible to have a non-resident company still. And don't forget the government's announced legislative response to that case where they're going to try and get closer. used to be the case that you had to demonstrate central management control and carrying on a business as two separate things in Australia. So that meant that your widget manufacturing company that has a production plant in Indonesia, manufacturing widgets, and that's all it does. Notwithstanding you might have Australian directors, that's not enough to bring that company into Australia for tax purposes, whereas under the conflated test, if you've got directors in Australia making decisions for that company, arguably it gets swept up.
1: Two things. The first one is you mentioned a BVI company before. That is a British Virgin island company, yeah. correct? Yeah. And of course, the British Virgin islands are a tax haven and hence are a popular vehicle to gather passive assets and then derive passive income.
0: Oh, popular in the sense that other jurisdictions, I get a lot of clients come to me that say they've been told to set up a BVI. I mean, that just doesn't work for Australian tax purposes, so I've never... 16 years of practice gone out of my way to set up a, or even been involved in setting up a BVI company. Because if you actually know how all these rules operate and apply them properly, that doesn't actually achieve much. Maybe non-tax reasons to do it. As I say, other jurisdictions have different rules and there might be other reasons why you want to put assets there. But from an Australian tax perspective, it doesn't do much.
1: Yes, fair point. The British Virgin Islands would be a popular tax haven if we didn't have the CFC rules. But the (laughs) CFC rules are exactly the reason why they're not... As popular as it might sound,
0: correct. And exactly. and I, th- I just thought one one good example for your listeners, or the listeners of this podcast, and it's an example I've, I've been through unfortunately, of how these rules can have unexpected application. so, if you take for an example that you have two brothers, there's a family company. Let's let's say in uh, wherever Singapore, and two brothers each own twenty percent of it. Uh, that's been passed to them through their inheritance, and you've got one of those brothers is in, in, in Australia and the, the other one isn't, then because that control test is associate inclusive, even though you've only got one Australian resident brother holding 20%, you must add his brother's, because associate includes sort of immediate family members, so you would add his brother's holding to his, which would give you 40%, and that's enough to make it a CFC. Uh, and then because you hold 20%, that's an attribution interest that's greater than 10. So notwithstanding, you may not control the company and you may not have access to any of the information to allow you to do the CFC calcs, because of that associated inclusive test, you get swept up into the CFC rules.
1: Next question, before you even worry about the CFC rules, you worry about the residents of the company. But if the company is not resident in Australia, then you do look at the CFC rules. But the CFC rules don't apply to certain countries. So if the company is, and I understand the UK and the US and some other countries, which are kind of labeled good countries, they're on the good list, then you don't have to worry about the CFC rules. Is that correct?
0: There's no specific country that's outside of the CFC rules. It's just that those countries have an even narrower definition of the type of, remember I talked about passive income, they have an even narrower definition of what we call EDCI or eligible designated concession income. It's in the regs, the 1936 Act. There's certain there's an even narrower category of income that would be bought into, into the regime and taxed in Australia. So, for example, New Zealand is a listed country. One of the things that, even though that's a good country, it's a listed country, one of the things that still gets bought in is capital gains because New Zealand doesn't have a capital gains tax. So Australia doesn't want to just exempt New Zealand holus bolus because New Zealand has a big gap in their tax regime from our perspective and that they don't impose a capital gains tax so it's you need to it's a certain subcategory of income
1: oh i see so no matter which country you can't just say oh the cfc rules don't apply because it's a company in a listed country
0: yeah correct correct
1: you covered new zealand for example that new zealand doesn't cover cgt What about the U.S.? How heavy do the CFC rules apply to Australian head companies in the U.S.?
0: Well, it would be an Australian head company with a subsidiary in the U.S. would be the the circumstance which you would look to it. But, I mean, much narrower. I mean, I think there's some forms of, like, it basically looks for types of income in the U.S. at the time these rules were drafted 30 years ago that basically weren't subject to tax and tries to bring those in to make sure that there's no income that's not being taxed, Right. Uh, so in the US, it's very narrow, very narrow indeed. Uh, same with the UK. So,
1: And so narrow means the CFC rules apply very easily.
0: Narrow means the, the likelihood of you having these specific types of income that you would, other, you would have to attribute under the CFC rules is low. So okay. less likely to apply, I guess, in, in, in a very broad sense of how you apply the rules.
1: Okay, good. So narrow is good because it means less.
0: Yeah. So, so your your inquiry would be as an advisor or a taxpayer. I have a US subsidiary. Before I even worry about control, if it's not immediately clear whether or not you control it, before you even go through any of that, I, I would you would say, okay, what type of income is this company earning, deriving, and is it if it's active income from manufacturing widgets, that's all fine. That's active. So the CFC rules isn't ever gonna Uh, ping that. Uh, If it's passive income, then you would look to these rules, have a look at the categories of EDCI income in the regs and see if it falls within any of those. And if it doesn't, then that's the end of the inquiry. Even if it is controlled, even if you do have an attribution interest, that entity doesn't have any of the types of income that would be attributed.
1: Good. So the first thing you look at is residence. And then the second thing is actually income. What type of income does it have? And if it's an active business income, then you don't need to worry about the CFC routes either.
0: Yeah. And there's thresholds if it's got, I think one of the tests is the active income test. So it's a 90% test. So if at least 90% of your income in a year is active, then you can have some passive income. So you might have a manufacturing operation, but it may have a large cash balance driving interest income. So as long as that interest income isn't enough to take you over that, that threshold, you're okay. But obviously that's a bit of a trap because you've got to do it on a year-to-year basis. And if you don't extract that money out of the bank or spend it, then that interest will gradually over time enlarge and you might get hit in a year where you, maybe your trading profits aren't as good as what they used to be and your, your interest income goes above that threshold. Uh, and that's the other point to note is that these, you assess these rules on the 30th of June every tax year and so there, there is a practice out there called bed and breakfasting. So people will actually dispose of their interests in their foreign subsidiaries on the 30th of June and reacquire it on the 1st of July just to avoid having to apply the CFC rules. So there you go. Is that legal? Yeah. Obviously, you bring to account, again, if those shares have gone up in value and you need to have valuations. But obviously, if some people really can't be bothered applying the CFC rules, um, you can always dispose of your shares so you don't actually hold them on 30 June and reacquire them. I don't think yeah I don't I don't think the tax office likes it, but at the end of the day, you're, you're bringing in, bringing forward a, a realised gain, so um,
1: maybe uh, so part four a doesn't stop that.
0: Uh, not that I've seen. I'm not aware of it's it's not a big practice, but I am aware of I don't.
1: Yeah, so the CFC routes can even apply to active business entities overseas but less likely they're most relevant when you're looking at holding wealth overseas when you are holding yeah. when you're looking yeah. at holding passive assets overseas a business expanding overseas is less likely to have to worry about the cfc routes but of course it can catch you out that for some reason suddenly your interest income is over 10 percent of your total income
0: yeah broadly speaking that's right
1: okay next topic Portfolio versus non-portfolio. Portfolio Portfolio dividends means you hold less than 10%. So, for example, when you invest in Apple or Google, you hold portfolio dividends. And non-portfolio dividends is when you hold equal or more than 10%. So that would be, for example, when you set up an entity overseas, let's say an LLC or a C-corp in the US, and you own it 100%, that that would be a non-portfolio dividend.
0: Before you get the debts. To segue back to our starting conversation about the foreign hybrid rules, that's when you talk LLCs, it's important first to categorise that LLC to see whether or not it is a company or a look-through for Australian purposes. Because if it's a look-through, then these rules don't apply, right? So,
1: Yeah, very good point.
0: You're not paying dividends. That Generally, that jurisdiction will be looking to the members of that company to lodge returns and pay tax rather than the company itself. So it won't be paying a dividend, so to speak.
1: Yes, that's a very good point. So you only have non-portfolio dividends of your entity overseas, for example, in the US, if it is not a look through entity. If it is a look through entity, then of course you're not receiving dividends, but you're receiving attributed income.
0: Correct.
1: Now this non-portfolio dividends, they are covered in subdivision 768A. And they speak about foreign equity distribution, but that covers dividends as well, doesn't it? It doesn't just mean return of capital. Yeah, no, no. Equity, about, it covers everything that is not debt.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I'll, I'll take that one on notice, but I think it's reference to an equity equity instrument rather than a return of share capital. So I think what it's saying is it can't be a return on a debt interest. So again, we're back into Division 974 and the categorization of debt versus equity on a substance basis.
1: Just to also quickly, just for completeness, mention the participation test. So to determine whether a dividend is a portfolio dividend or a non-portfolio dividend, you run a participation test and that takes the total of direct and indirect interests into account. And why do we worry about this distinction between portfolio and non-portfolio, we worry about it because those dividends are taxed very differently when they arrive back in Australia.
0: Correct. So maybe we start with a tax treatment. So a portfolio, it's when 768A applies, uh, that that dividend will be non, what we call NANE or non-assessable or non-exempt income in the hands of the Australian recipient. So it won't be taxed here, but obviously it doesn't also then generate franking credits. So it's a timing advantage to the extent you retain that those dividends in the Australian holding company then, and don't pay them out to individual shareholders, you don't pay any further tax. But obviously, as soon as you pay that out, there's, there's tax to pay and no franking credits. So that's point one. If it's not a non-portfolio dividend, then you're taxed in the normal manner at, at, at the marginal rate of or, or the applicable rate of the person who holds those shares. Uh, the other point to note, and we'll get a bit onto it in a minute with withholding tax, but where 768A applies to treat that dividend is non-assessable, non-exempt income, you do not get a foreign tax offset, income tax offset or a FITO in respect of any withholding tax paid in the foreign jurisdiction.
1: Yes, but you do for a portfolio dividend and hence you don't want to hold portfolio dividends within a company because then you lose those FITOs when the dividends are coming out.
0: Yeah, well, the company at least will be able to claim a FITO. If it's held by a company and it's less than 9%, the company will obviously, 768 won't apply, but and you'll get a FITO, but it'll be at the company level. Whereas if you hold a non-portfolio interest in a foreign company or a portfolio interest via a trust, then it changes the outcome. And that's the other point is when you look at whether or not an Australian entity has a portfolio interest in a foreign company, you've got to, really look at indirect and direct participation interests. There is some scope for tracing through partnerships and trusts in Australia. And so you have to consider then, it's obviously very clear we have an Australian holding company holding 100% of the shares in a foreign subsidiary. That's a direct 100% interest in a foreign company. What if you've got a unit trust in Australia holding 100% in the foreign company? If that income comes through and then flows through the Australian holding trust to one of the unit holders, and one of those unit holders is a company. You've got to think about whether that corporate beneficiary or corporate unit holder has an indirect participation interest of at least ten percent. Therefore, you've got to work out how much, how many units in the unit trust it holds, and you've got to do that tracing exercise. Uh, and there's also some quite important timing issues. So it's generally pretty hard to get a corporate beneficiary of a discretionary trust to rely on seven six eight because generally that a discretionary beneficiary of a of a discretionary trust doesn't really have an interest uh, under trust law in the underlying trust property. merely has a right to be considered by the trustee. So it's pretty hard to say at the time that you the trust received the distribution that the beneficiary was entitled to ten percent or more of distributions. So there's and there's some determinations out on that if people are interested uh, and that's triggering uh, something that in your mind that it might be relevant. I'd advise you to go and have a look. Look at that, because as soon as you start tracing through trusts and partnerships, you've got to be very careful in working out whether or not you have that 10% participation interest. Talking about non-portfolio, so if you want to get the benefit of 768A for a a non-portfolio dividend, it's got to be derived by a company. So that's the only way you get it. If if you've got a portfolio dividend subject to the analysis around foreign income tax offsets, you can hold that through a trust or individuals.
1: So for a portfolio dividend, you can get the Fito even when you hold the shares through a trust. The Fito can still come through. Yes. All the way down to the beneficiary. Yeah. So that's not an issue. It's only when you have non-portfolio dividends and then you basically don't have a company, then 768A the doesn't really work. You're talking about a discretionary trust that then distributes to a bucket company for your corporate. Correct. Okay, good. So don't use a bucket company with a non-portfolio dividend.
0: Well, I think you need to take advice and with regards to the trustee and the specific circumstances and timing of the distribution. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying the rules aren't designed to really allow that. So there's, there's all sorts of timing issues. That's complicated.
1: Yes. Good. Okay, next question. Withholding tax. So, first of all, to talk about the concept, the general rules are basically 15% on dividends with a double tax agreement, so with a DTA, 30% without a DTA, but then the DTA might change it to 0, 5 or 10%. And as an example, for example, thanks to the DTA with the UK and Hong Kong, the uh, withholding tax on dividends is 0%. But usually the general rule is 15% with the DTA and 30% without a DTA. And it might be something different if the DTA comes to a different percentage.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's it's, it's actually harder than that because there's that's sort of true from an Australian perspective, but of course we have an imputation system. So a fully frank dividend paid by an Australian company offshore will never have withholding tax by virtue of our domestic rules. So it doesn't matter what the treaty says if, Domestically, you're not imposing dividend withholding tax. You don't even have to look at the treaty. So fully frank dividends out of Australia, no withholding tax. Uh, and then when you're looking at foreign entities paying dividends to an Australian parent, then you're into uh, potentially applying the treaty. But that's a function of whatever the foreign jurisdiction imposes as a domestic rate. What the treaties do is cap the rate. They say that, that the source country cannot impose withholding tax greater than X percent, whether it's five or 15, but that's not to say that all countries impose dividend withholding tax. Uh, and the second point I should just note that Hong Kong doesn't have a treaty with Australia, so it's a gap in our treaty coverage at the moment.
1: And withholding tax is a tax issue for the source country. So when we're looking at dividends coming into Australia, it covers the tax of the source country.
0: Yeah. But the- That's true, but it's important to note that it's source country taxation, but it's deducted by the payer of those amounts on behalf of the non-resident, right? So it's a withholding tax. So it's actually, withholding tax exists because of the difficulties in collecting and enforcing tax obligations offshore, right? So what they do is they clip the ticket or take that withholding tax before the money leaves the country. That way they don't have to have an argument or try and chase it in a foreign jurisdiction. But that's actually tax that's being deducted at source and withheld on, on behalf of the foreign person. And so, going back to your point about yes, yeah, so it covers it, it
1: covers the the entity's tax position in the other country. It doesn't affect the tax position within Australia.
0: No, but but sometimes you, you, generally, if 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 you have withholding tax, the way Australian rules work is you will gross up to the extent of any withholding tax, reapply the appropriate Australian domestic rate and then you will get a credit for the withholding tax. So it does sort of impact the Australian tax treatment whether or not you get a FITO. And as I said before, if it's 768, non accessible non-exempt income, you don't get one. Because that income isn't subject to tax here, but where it is subject to tax, there's a gross up and then a credit mechanism.
1: Welcome back. So the foreign hybrid rules are about foreign look-through entities. If the source country treats a company as a look-through, as a sole trader or a partnership, then we do the same thanks to the foreign hybrid rules. The hybrid mismatch rules are just to stop funny games using mismatches between local tax laws and double tax agreements. The thin cap rules are to stop you from highly gearing Australian entities with debt and to then use interest payments exceeding 2 million a year to transfer profit to overseas entities, most likely in tax havens. But even if the thin cap rules don't kick in because you are under 2 million interest a year, you still have the transfer pricing rules to contend with. And, of course, the transfer pricing rules also apply when you try to transfer profit through management fees, royalties in IP or inflated stock prices, for example. The CFC rules are to stop you from parking passive income overseas and they do it by attributing that passive income from controlled companies back to you. And TOFA has a minimum threshold of 100 million dollars so most of us won't have to worry about how to treat gains and losses from financial arrangements under TOFA. And TOFA is not about international tax as such anyway but about financial arrangements, which might be international, but might also be domestic. Tomorrow, in a special US episode, let's look at US tax and talk with Al Nunez of Anderson Tax in San Francisco about US corporations, so S and C corps, as well as LLCs. But I'm conscious that this is very US-specific. So if your clients are not expanding into the US, but for example, into Asia or Europe or South America... Then skip tomorrow and we see each other next Monday for episode 318. To block or not to block. Clint Harding and Alex Rasmussen of Arnold Block will look at whether to use a blocker company. And if you do, what tax implications that has in Australia. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.